This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go behind the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. May 9th is celebrated as Victory Day in Russia to commemorate the defeat of Nazi Germany in World War II. It's being closely watched this year as it takes place amid the ongoing war in Ukraine. To better understand the significance of Victory Day for Russia, as well as get some updates on the front line, joining me today is Dr. Alexei Muraviev, Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University. Good morning, Alexei. Thanks very much for joining me today. Can we start with um, maybe getting some background to Victory Day? How significant is May 9th in the Russian calendar compared to, say, other noteworthy dates like Russia Day on June 12th or Unity Day in November? Look, I mean, I think uh, it certainly stands out, uh, not, not just because of, uh, of, of, of the calendar, uh, but more importantly because of the symbolism and significance and, and the, the signification of, of the day because uh, the, the, the so-called Great Patriotic War, the way how the Russians described the, the segment of the Second World War where they fought against the Third Reich, not just not against Nazi Germany, but effectively the 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 the, the, the Nazi controlled Europe um, affected almost every single Soviet family. It's not just about the Russians, it's about effectively the the citizens of the former Soviet Union. And the fact that it wasn't just a war between um, warring nations. It was it was the fight for survival. It was the fight for um uh, not just sovereignty, but preserving national identity and and actually preservation of of the Soviets as 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 a as a society mm-hmm. and and the ultimate sacrifice that uh, that that war has has uh, caused. You know, the, even even now, the, it's it's still not uh, not not very clear on how many uh, millions the Soviets have lost because the final uh, updated count suggested. Um, over 26.5 million, which actually makes it the single largest loss out of all the nations that participated in the Second World War. So the sheer sacrifice, the, the extent of the devastation, the extent of the loss, and also the, the realization that uh, the, the, the Soviets won the war in Europe or certainly made the, the, uh, the, the, the leading contribution of the war in, in Europe makes this one of the two most treasured holidays in the mindsets uh, of, of the Russians, uh, mm-hmm. which could only be compared to New Year's Eve celebrations, but obviously the other one would have completely different meaning and completely different attribution in the mindsets of, of the Russian people. Okay, so there is a lot of history imbued in this particular date. And the highlight of Victory Day celebrations is, of course, the military parade. Has this always been the centerpiece, or have military parades become a bigger spectacle under President Vladimir Putin? Well, it's, it's, it's actually a very Im- uh, important question that you have asked, because shortly after the war under Yosef Stalin, uh, the Soviets did not celebrate Victory Day. Yes, it was a, a special day in, in, in the Soviet calendar, but it wasn't marked by any, any type of grand fanfare, etc. And it, it, uh, the first military parade uh, since the end of the Second World War was actually held on uh, uh, 9th of May 1965. Mm. And since then, it has become a tradition because in the Soviet Union, uh, the most uh, celebrated national holiday was the uh, 7th of November, the, 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 the Russian Revolution uh, Day. That's what was marked by 
by the traditional military parade. Um, after, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the tradition of celebrating Victory Day um, with, as a grandiose holiday uh, was effectively cancelled, and it was part of Yeltsin's attempt to fight the communist past and to transform Russia into a modern capitalist-oriented state. And it, it, it certainly um, under Vladimir Putin, where the tradition of celebrating Victory Day making it once again an official holiday and gradually reintroducing the military aspects, hmm. the symbolic aspects of, of those celebrations, that was that was restored. And it was also a gradual process. It started pretty low, and uh, year after year after year, uh, the, the, the scale of the celebration um, was, was gradually expanded. The uh, mechanized element, the display of military hardware was introduced, uh, then uh, the air element was, was introduced. So uh, by, uh, say, 2020, 2021, uh, that, that parade has become certainly something that the world was watching because it wasn't just about demonstrating and displaying um, uh, Russia's advances in terms of uh, the development and deployment of new military technology, but certainly symbolism associated with the speech that Putin would, would be making mm. on, um, on every uh, victory day, which would not just be about commemorating the victory, but would also about sending the signal to the world about Russia's uh, feel for the situation in the world at, at that particular point, more importantly about Russia's intent. Right. And many international observers believe that President Putin will use May 9th this year to repackage the current war in Ukraine. What kind of narrative do you think could come out of this event from Russia's perspective? What are your expectations for President Putin's speech this year? Look, I mean, to be honest, it's really hard to predict what Putin is going to say because there's been enough speculation about what may be um, included in this in the speech, ranging from uh, a declaration of all on all out war on Ukraine, because the Russians still refuse to classify uh, what they describe as a uh, special military operation as the full scale war against Ukraine, to declaration uh, of the annexation of more of Ukraine's territories, particularly in the countries um, southeast, where the Russians managed to make significant advances. Well. Again, Putin is full of surprises, and I'm, I'm, you know, I won't be surprised if the third option would come up. Mm. What I'm pretty certain will happen is Putin will will definitely draw a parallel between the war um, uh, that the Soviets fought against the Nazis between 1945 and 1945, and the war that the Russians are fighting in Ukraine, because um, uh, the ideological dis- justification for Russia's invasion of Ukraine was very much driven by by effectively this uh, narrative that the Russians are going there to once again liberate the Ukrainian people from the neo-Nazi elements and the whole Soviet World War II type legacy and the heritage and the symbolism associated with this has been widely used and and extensively promoted throughout the campaign. First of all, to mobilize Russians and uh, mobilize Russia's support, Mm. but also to effectively symbolize Russia's presence on Ukraine's occupied territories. I'll, I'll give you one example. For example, in, in now all the towns which the Russians uh, took control of, they, the, one of the first things they do, they, they raise copies of the Red Army banner that uh, uh, the, the Soviets installed over the Reichstag, the, 
German Parliament when Berlin was captured um, in uh, in late uh, April 1945. So the symbolism of of the Second World War has now been effectively translated into into the circumstances in Ukraine, and certainly the Russians are trying to present the whole fight there. It's fight against NATO, but more importantly, the continuation of the fight against the Nazism that they have um, won 77 years ago. Okay, so Russia is, of course, going to want to try to portray uh, what's happening on the Ukraine front lines in a positive light from its perspective. But I suppose from outsiders' perspective, um, it it doesn't seem that Russia's uh, campaign is going all that well. It was surprising to many that Russia failed to make successful inroads into Kyiv as planned. And it has had difficulty making breakthroughs in eastern Ukraine, at least to the extent that it wishes. I mean, would it be accurate to describe the Russian military as a paper tiger at this point? No, I wouldn't describe it as a paper tiger. I think the Russian military was actually caught um, in, in, in the political game and that the Kremlin was, was, was playing. I mean, we need to remember that in the first days of the, of the invasion, uh, the military made some really swift advances. I mean, within, within 48 hours, the Russians reached the outskirts of Kiev. But the logic behind that sort of swift raids without any proper logistical backup, and they, they, they look kind of semi-professional or even unprofessional from the military specialist perspective, was almost an expectation that the Russians can pull uh, a repeat of um, the Crimea scenario when they swiftly move their elements across the peninsula and, and, and the locals would greet them as liberators, so that the local bureaucracy would uh, quickly switch sides, etc., so there is there is a growing understanding inside Russia that there was an expectation that somehow uh, the corrupt political elite in um, in 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 the capital of of Ukraine, Kiev, that that time, uh, that apparently was quietly fed by the Russian authorities, would effectively switch sides and would present Kiev and and uh, Cher- and uh, Chernigov, uh, Kharkiv, and 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 couple of other major major capitals, uh, to the Russians without them having the need to besiege the cities and, uh, uh, and, 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 and take full control. And that was, it was a clear political adventure. Mm. And that's why the military was caught completely un- unprepared, uh, simply because they did not expect fierce resistance coming from the Ukrainian fighters. Mm-hmm. And uh, only once realizing that this is not going to be the case, and also we need to remember that the Russians are not fighting this war by committing the entire extent of their military. They're still trying to uh, fight and win this war by committing um, um, like one-fifth of the entire force. So it's almost like fighting the war on the budget. Mm-hmm. And Putin continues to refuse to expand um, the, 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 the size of the military commitment, probably for internal political and other reasons. Mm-hmm. But effectively, uh, it's all, uh, the, the, the Russian military command has been presented with a case. You won't get uh, more troops try to win the war by having additional resources. And that explains the whole maneuvering that began taking place when the Russians pulled their forces out of the outskirts of Kiev, out of um, um, uh, p- parts of northeastern Ukraine, began moving them um, down further south and began sort of taking a far more conservative approach where they tried, instead of trying to um, penetrate deep into Ukrainian territory, they used the, the uh, advantages of their 
firepower of the offensive air power and effectively pounded the Ukrainian positions and, and taken a very slow approach, which makes more logic from the military perspective, but makes um, uh, little, little political advantages um, for Putin and the Kremlin, because I'm pretty sure there was an expectation that they could report major victory today mm. um, at, at the time of their victory, victory Day celebrations. I'm speaking to Alexei Muraviev, Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University. We'll come back with more from this discussion after a short break. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar, and with me on the show today is Alexei Muraviev, Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University. We're discussing updates on the war in Ukraine and signals to look out for from Russia as it celebrates Victory Day today, May the 9th. Um, Alexei, earlier we were discussing about, I suppose, the mismatch between expectations and realities of the Russian uh, military versus the political class in its um, invasion of Ukraine. One thing I've been wondering is how entwined is the military in Russia's political culture? Does the military have sway over Russia's political direction or is it vice versa? How does that work? Well, historically, the Russians... uh, uh, didn't play an active role in in Russia's political life. Uh, contrary to some other cultures, I mean, if you if you think, for example, Myanmar, um, uh, that uh, I mean, the situation in Russia has has a completely um, uh, different angle. Even though the history of Russia uh, demonstrated that from from time to time the military would play a role in choosing whom uh, whom to govern the Russia. There was there were cases when uh, the favorites, uh, the contenders for the Russian crown, would be installed on the throne uh, by means of uh, and support from, say, uh, the Russian guard, etc. Uh, but certainly, since since the Soviet times, the the, the the military was subordinated to the Russian state. They were an essential element of the machine, but they never had or never played uh, a, a decisive role. Mm-hmm. However, under uh, under Vladimir Putin, both the military and the security services have gained far more ground um, uh, and increased their weight. I mean, the fact that Putin, uh, Putin's most personal friend, at least uh, uh, what is publicly known, um, is, is Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, mm. with whom he spends a lot of time uh, on, on holidays, with whom he shares a lot of interest does suggest that certainly the military can be viewed, well, pri- prior to the war, mm. uh, could have been viewed as, as the backbone of, of Putin's power, not just the security apparatus, which obviously backs him up as well, but certainly uh, that the powerful military, as well as the military-industrial complex, which employs um, about 10 million, if not more, uh, of, of Russian skilled workers. So it's yeah, the military... And, and, and the whole military security apparatus within the Russian government have, have gained um, potency and, 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 and prominence, as well as certainly more and more support. Because, for example, Russia's Ministry of Defense um, has its own ways to um, uh, influence the public opinion because mm-hmm. it has its own major uh, TV station and has a number of media outlets. Um, it, it even... Um, um, engages a lot with the new Russians through the so-called Youth Army Initiative. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, and Shoigu has always been 
viewed as one of the potential successors of Putin. So certainly we would uh, we should not dismiss uh, the might and the influence of, of, of the military, especially in times of crisis like what we've seen right now. Mm. Earlier, you had also mentioned that at the moment, Russia is deploying some one-fifth of its military might into the war in Ukraine. Would a declaration of war be necessary for Russia to ramp up military resources and send more boots there? Look, I mean, a formal declaration of war would provide legal grounds uh, to call on mobilization. And this is what a lot of experts in Russia are effectively uh, saying, as, as, as well as uh, retired generals. They effectively say that uh, to, to conquer uh, a country the size of Ukraine, which is um, after Russia is the second largest country in Europe by virtue of geography, it simply requires twice the size of the force that the Russians have committed to the conflict right now. But clearly Putin didn't want, again for political reasons, didn't want to call the invasion of Ukraine uh, an invasion. That's why he described as a a special military operation, which means he he didn't have to declare war on Ukraine and he can stop it at any any, any particular time. The mobilization uh, would, um, as a result of... um, of a full uh, declaration of war, effectively an admission of what the Russians been doing over the past three months, would certainly give the Russians an opportunity to uh, assemble the, the the force that would be sufficient for them to wage operations in ways uh, that they want mm. on one hand. But on the other hand, it's, it's still unclear on how the Russian population will respond to it, because right now they feel very comfortable with the way how the war is going, despite heavy casualties and the slow pace of the campaign, also because the majority of the fighting has been um, um, uh, carried out by the professional soldiers, not mm. not by the conscripts, as some reports initially suggested, but drafting conscripts and, and, um, and, and, and sending uh, mobilized civilians into, into combat may also be uh, potentially risky because no one knows how the Russian population will start feeling about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there is a tricky balance for President Putin to um, to maneuver if, in terms of how he decides, if he decides to uh, ramp up the war effort. Um, I would like to ask, um, Alexei, your thoughts on how different countries have been reacting. And there's been a lot of focus, of course, on Western countries um, who have been united in imposing harsh sanctions um, on Russia. And I think they're also doing this ahead of the May 9th celebrations. But this hasn't been replicated by the global south. So we have countries like China, India, Brazil and South Africa taking a non-aligned approach. I'm wondering, does this provide cover for Russia in the sense that these positions serve uh, to prolong the war um, to Russia's favor? Well, it it certainly does, because uh, while there's been a lot of talk about the impact of the sanctions and how the entire world condemns Russia's aggression, but clearly it hasn't been the case because uh, as, as you have said, a number of major countries, especially across the Indo-Pacific region, has either taken a neutral stand or in case of notorious regimes like in Myanmar, for example, they even provided Russia with, with open support. So if you start really um, um, mapping, mapping out uh, who are, uh, which countries actually condemn Russia's actions and which countries... Um, uh, support Russia's actions, or which countries take neutral stand, that we actually will 
um, will come to the conclusion that those who actually oppose Russian actions um, are, remain the minority. It's not to say that everyone who declares neutrality quietly supports Russia, but mm. as long as the Russians don't face the majority of the country's hostility, uh, they, that gives them a breathing space. That gives them space for geopolitical maneuver. And, and, and certainly when you have um, um, uh, semi-support of countries like China, like India, that gives the Russians um, significant confidence in, um, in, 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 in dealing and also, more importantly, mitigation of the economic impact of the sanctions. Because clearly, in the third month of, of, um, of, of the incredibly tight sanctions regime, extreme sanctions regime that the Russians have uh, came under, I think there is now a growing realization that uh, just like with the imposition of sanctions in 2014 following Russia's annexation of Crimea, uh, I think we put too much hope in, in uh, uh, trying to alter Russia's behavior, perhaps even um, uh, force the regime change inside the country by penalizing the country uh, economically. Certainly the Russian economy, despite the fact that Half of Russia's uh, resources have been uh, the, the ones that were allocated in Western banks have been uh, denied access access to by Moscow mm. to Moscow. Sorry, but uh, clearly the Russian economy has proven to be far more resilient. And certainly the Russians, I think, cleverly calculated the uh, global energy market situation because, um, according to a variety of reports, they're making now even more money. Uh, on selling oil, gas, and other critical energy resources that they did the same time last year. Mm -hmm. So while they may have been hurt by significant uh, uh, waves of sanctions, and definitely the Russian economy is suffering, uh, but uh, their, their, their resources are far from being dried up, and they certainly uh, increase, managed to increase their revenue simply because they, they launched this campaign at the time when the world is absolutely desperate to get more resources, including resources from Russia, than less. Right. Alexei, thanks very much for speaking with me today. No doubt we'll have more conversations from this as the situation unfolds and we'll all be watching to see what President Putin says on Victory Day today. Thanks very much again. I've been speaking to Dr. Alexei Muraviev, Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.